You Can Mentor is a podcast about the power of building relationships with kids from hard places in the name of Jesus. Every episode will help you overcome common mentoring obstacles and give you the confidence you need to invest in the lives of others. You Can Mentor. All right, here we go. Welcome to the You Can Mentor podcast. Featuring Zach and Steven and our guest, Luke Whitmire. That was powerful. <laughs> That's what we got. That's what we got working on today. All right. Hey, for all you people out there in listen land, we are coming to you full steam ahead with a podcast on mentoring today on the You Can Mentor podcast. Wow. <laughs> Listening land. Listening land. Listen <laughs> land. Huh? No? I mean, I honestly think if we just stayed quiet, he would do that for 15 minutes. So. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is like my favorite part of the week. I love doing this. I was in bed last night and I could not sleep and I was just thinking of ways. All right. Like well, um, for those of you guys who are listening, uh, my mom and like the other 15 of y'all. <laughs> yes, our 10 listeners. Let me introduce y'all to our guest today. His name is Luke Whitmire. What's going on? And Luke, uh, <laughs> Luke's involved with a ministry in the great city of Oklahoma City called Cross and Crown Ministries, and uh, we are here today to learn from Luke and his extensive uh, experience working with um, kids from hard places, specifically kids who come from um, extreme poverty. So Luke, can you introduce yourself? Tell us about how we know each other. Tell us about your family. Tell us about Cross and Crown and what it is that you do there, and then we'll get this thing going. Yeah, could you All also right. share what your favorite coffee shop in Oklahoma City is? Luke doesn't go to coffee. Uh, I don't drink coffee. Oh, no. Yeah, but, like, that's a big disconnect for me and, like, other people that work in ministry and churches. Like, I should have done my homework on you. Like, I get, I mean, I say I, like, I'm some unique, special individual. Anyone that works in ministry, like, coffee is, like, such a, it's like another world. Like, a cultish <laughs> following. Anyway, people invite me to coffee, and I'm like, you want to grab lunch or get a Dr. Pepper or something? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, I don't uh, do coffee. I will say uh, a buddy of mine and his wife own a, like, local bakery, and they have, like, a small coffee shop in it. So I don't mind them. Yeah, please do. Uh, wild, yeah, Wilder Coffee. Oh, I've awesome. never had their coffee, but I know it's delicious because they're really good people. There you go. So when Luke texts somebody, he's like, do you want to go grab croissants? <laughs> That's pretty much what you do. Do you want to go get I a love, sugary? I love croissants. Garson, do you want to go get a sugary pastry with me? <laughs> you know how much I would love to get a sugary pastry. <laughs> um, oh, also, Luke, just before you get going, because uh -huh. we know how much you like to get going. Yeah. I just want to let everyone know that Luke and I go way back. Uh, Luke and I have known each other since college. Like going on 15 sure. years now. Wow. We yep. vacation together. Our families do. Mm -hmm. And uh, Luke and I are quite possibly the greatest point guard post duo <laughs> in the history of Abilene Christian University in basketball. This is <laughs> true. Right, although later in our relationship in basketball careers, it's been a little, it hasn't been certain who's the point guard and who's the post because Garza <laughs> has transitioned into a, a post guard. I love shooting threes. He likes to oh, handle wow. the ball, take... <laughs> you know, take shots, contested shots, that kind of thing. So <laughs> although what you said is true, it's developed into something quite different now in our adult years. Yes. Yeah. But man, I just love shooting the basketball and not passing. It's like my favorite thing. <laughs> <laughs> Luke. All right. Tell us about Cross and Crown and um, the environment there and the types of kids that you work with and what some of the uh, things that you see on a day-to-day -day basis look like. I'm a, I'm a local missionary. That is my official job title. So I fundraise and I make connections um, so that financially I can, 
you know, support my family, but also be in a position to work at Crossing Crown. We're a nonprofit faith-based ministry. Um, we're not a church. We're in an old church building. So a lot of people in the community um, and even those from outside the community that come to volunteer, uh, they, they kind of have a first impression that we're a church because we're in an old building, an old church building. Uh, but like I said, we're here because we are faith-based. We love Jesus. We want people to know who Jesus is. And um, so we've situated ourselves in the middle of a community. Um, we would consider this community, I mean, this community is um, what we consider low income. It's the working poor. Um, so it's a residential area. Uh, most people rent homes in this neighborhood and community, um, but they just, they're not able to make ends meet. Um, a lot of these uh, families that we are in relationship with are what we consider like day wages. So it's not like a 40 hour work week. You know, you have a, a job lined up every day. It's you, you get it, go to temporary work, uh, get a job, finish that job, and then you're really not sure where your, your next job is going to come from. So there's a lot of people on, in this community that that's the way they function and that's the way that they uh, are able to get by. And so Crossing Crown came along about 20 years ago um, and said, we want to help out. We want to be a part of, of this community if they'll allow us. Um, it is their community and that is very important to remember in everything that we do, <clears throat> that we are we're visitors in this community. We've been here for 20 years and we feel like we have some ownership in it, um, but I don't live here. So this is not my, this is not my neighborhood. I, I certainly love this neighborhood and the people here. Um, and I want to do everything I can to support them and love them and point them to Jesus. Uh, but when it comes down to it, this is their this is their neighborhood, not mine. Uh, and beyond that, this is God's neighborhood, and these are God's people. So uh, that's kind of the foundation of of everything that we do here. Um, to kind of to go backwards a little bit and kind of talk about the origins of Crossing Ground and how it began, um, and and how you know my God allowed me to be a part of this ministry. Uh, my parents, uh, Paul and Suzanne Whitmire, were a part of a small group, um, just at their local church. Um, that that we attended growing up uh, through elementary, middle school, and a little bit into high school. Um, they were part of a small group. We'd meet every Sunday night. The adults would have a Bible study. Uh, the kids would goof off, play games, eat, and whatnot. And after doing that for several years, four or five years, um, the adults in the group decided after you know being prayerful and, and studying and being in Scripture that they needed to do more. They needed to be doing more than just um, building each other up and edifying one another, um, but how could they you know be an impact for their community where they lived and um, for those who may be uh, less fortunate than they were um, on a few different levels. And so um, just through some exploration of the city and um, a lot of lunch breaks, a lot of the um, husbands or fathers of the group, they'd meet together, they'd eat lunch, and then they would just drive throughout the city. And they would go to very uh, difficult parts of the city where there's high crime, where there's just a lot of, uh, of poverty, where basically they would look on the news, read the newspaper, wherever the issues were, that's where they wanted to go. They wanted to go into the heaviest um, parts of the, of the city and figure out what could be done to, to basically lend a helping hand and, and, um, see, see how they could help. And, um, so long story short, they ended up here at the corner of McKinley and ninth street. We're in the Northwest side of Oklahoma city. Uh, the way the city's kind of split up, you consider the Northwest side, you got the Northeast, Southeast, Southwest. And there's basically those four quadrants where each of those, um, portions of the city kind of have some similar, they have uh, overlapping issues. Um, but a lot of them have their own individual issues. There's, uh, the south side is predominantly a Latino in Oklahoma City, whereas the east side is predominantly African-American. And then the northwest side that we're on is, is a pretty decent blend of, of a little bit of everything. And um, so it's, it's a unique, we're in a, a unique portion of the city um, uh, that we minister in. And um, so anyway, back to the origins of Crossing Crown. When it, when it began, it was um, basically a, a, a call of obedience. They, were, they weren't really sure exactly what they'd be doing, but they, knew they needed to do something. So they just showed up. Um, which is something that continues to be a very uh, foundational effort that we make in just showing up. Um, those dads would show up, they'd bring their lunches. And uh, this building that we're in now was essentially gifted to some extent to us um, through fundraising. 
And uh, they would show up in this building. They would open the doors. They would eat lunch. They would have a Bible study, and they would just let anyone walk in that walked in. And um, they would try to they would meet needs on the fly. So if there was a mother that walked in and needed food for her baby, they would figure out a way to get formula, to get diapers, to get baby clothes. If there was a a grandmother that brought grandchildren, couldn't go to school, they needed school uniforms. They would rally the troops, call the church, get people that wanted to help out financially, or maybe had some um, school uniforms, and they would piece together um, different solutions to these problems that were being presented to them. And so uh, that is the yeah. story of how the ministry started. Um, from the jump, we are, we are a prayer ministry. So we pray. That's what we do. We pray with people. We pray with groups. It doesn't matter what your need is, how big, how small, we're, we're going to pray with you. We're going to ask Jesus to be a part of, of what we're doing. Um, and that, again, that's something that is from the first day that um, this, this ministry began unofficially even, uh, prayer has been the foundation of what we do. And um, that continues today. Uh, today, we are, I guess you could consider, you know, we're a functioning ministry to some extent, a fully functioning ministry to some extent in terms of what we're attempting to accomplish. Um, and what we're attempting to accomplish is meeting the different physical needs of this community. Um, our objective is that our, our objective and our intentions are to serve this neighborhood, but we accept anyone that wants yeah. to be a part of, of what we do here. So we do have people that come throughout the city. I mean, people will travel, you know, 20, 30 minutes, which in Oklahoma city is a decent drive, um, to get to a food pantry or to, to receive legal aid or what, what have you. Um, but we are very intentional with our immediate neighbors. We want to know their names. We want to know their children. We want to know their families, who's in their homes. Um, and, and that way, the more we learn about them, the more that we think we can be effective in, in helping them. <clears throat> uh, currently, we have a food pantry. We have a clothing room. Uh, we provide medical aid, uh, legal aid. And um, and we have our youth center here at Rock Island, which which I'm the director at, that we provide after school program and summer programs uh, for the, the kids of the community. So that that in a roundabout way is, is Crossing Crown. And then Rock Island is a, an extension. Our youth center at Rock Island is an extension of Crossing Crown Mission. Uh, but that, that is what we do. And that is kind of an overview of, of the community that we serve. That's awesome, Luke. Thanks so much for sharing that, man. Um, can can uh, can you just kind of try to paint a picture for people who are tuning in? What what does a what does a day look like in one of the kids who you serve? Um, what is their environment? What are some of the things that they have to um, face on a day in a day out basis? Yeah. Um, so there's kind of a, I don't know, a kid is a kid, right? So like, Every kid, regardless of, at least in the United States, um, I mean, has certain struggles that they're going to deal with. If they're attending school, yeah. I mean, every kid's going to deal to some extent with peers socially, with bullying and whatnot, which is, I mean, obviously it's gotten, it's getting worse or it's gotten worse. I mean, that's, that's an ongoing struggle of all kids. But I will say in my time here uh, as a youth director and even before that working as a staff member, <clears throat> it, it, it is definitely amplified. That is one dimension of being a young person in this this community, this part of the city and the school system. Um, it's literally the kids know nothing different. They're like, they, in fact, conversations I have with them when I, you know, you can identify bullying, like it's not to them, it's not bullying. It's just survival. It's just what, right. what happens. And so it's just literally a natural way of life and existence. And so that's one thing I would say that to me, I mean, in my, I've been here full time for 13 years. That is something to me that I, I know that breaks my heart. That just that that's a reality that every day that's a reality and, and it is it is discouraging at times because I'm, I'm not sure how that that pattern is broken but i do think it's important to identify that to let kids know that that's not the way things ought to be it's not the way things should be and then helping them to combat that and then also be intentional on their end you know helping helping them not to replicate that whether intentionally or unintentionally to other kids that may be at risk so i think that's really something really important for specifically the kids you know in this community that, that are coming from difficult places and from from homes maybe that may not be what they ought to be um, but that's definitely one I would highlight that I think is a struggle and it would be important for somebody to know if they're going to mentor or to tutor or to whatever capacity be, be a part of a kid's life from, from a, 
an area where like like these kids are coming from. Yeah. Something else I know that kind of a from a broad perspective, um, something that I didn't grow up in, and so I couldn't relate with it initially when I started working here. But again, it's it's a reality and it's more the norm. You know, my norm growing up was you have a mom and a dad, and you may have a sibling or two, and and that's that, right? I mean, I have come from a pretty standard middle class family, and so that's what I was used to. But the standard down here is, I would say probably half the kids that I am in daily relationship with come from homes that a grandparent raises them, um, and the other half come from a home that it's another adult that they live with. It's not their mom or their dad. It's either an aunt or an uncle, or maybe even a cousin that's just a few years older than them that legally has custody of them. You know, a twenty-year-old cousin, and you know, the student is sixteen or something like that. So a lot of wow. uh, I hesitate. Cause I think it goes deeper than just broken homes because it's not just broken homes. Like, you know, dad left. And so mom takes care of the kids, which, which obviously happens. Um, but even beyond that, there's so many of these kids that live with extended family members um, and grandparents that don't have the means or the, really the ability to raise them, but do so out of just lack of options. So you have a lot of these kids that are essentially raising themselves. You know, I mean the term, the latchkey kid, which is definitely true, but like it goes so much deeper than just walking home from school and letting yourself in the house and feeding yourself. Like these kids, conversations I have with these kids all the time. It's just unbelievable. I mean, these kids are making adult decisions when they're 12, 13. I mean, they're having to make life decisions that I didn't have to make till I was 25. They're doing it in fourth and fifth grade. And so it's really difficult, I think, for a lot of them. And then even as a mentor or as a youth director, as a volunteer, you know, meeting them in those places and just giving them advice and helping them along because they're not really prepared to make a lot of these decisions that they're having to make. So that's two or three of the primary difficulties or struggles that a lot of these kids that, uh, that I work with, a lot of the things that I know that are going on in their, in their minds and in their hearts that they struggle with on a daily basis that, again, it's, it's become such the norm and all they know that even when you identify it in them or in their lives or you make an observation, it's hard for them to even see it because it's all they know. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, Luke, I love, I mean, just the picture that you painted of how, the issue is deeper than broken homes and broken families. And when you talk about bullying being being something that a kid does to survive, not just, I mean, when I was bullied as a kid, I knew it was not normal. I knew that this relationship was different than other ones where I feel cared for, protected, known. But there might be kids in our communities that have never experienced that side. And so there, I just think that's such a great picture of What's normal to us isn't normal to them. Right. Um, so what what would you say to a, a mentor who, yeah, I mean, is is coming into that space and and looking to understand and grow in clarity of, I mean, I, I think it's not just as simple as I can solve this bullying issue mm-hmm. and and teach him this is not how to live or this is not what you do. How how do you actually create change as a mentor within that space or is that even your role? Right. Yeah. So I think. I briefly touched on it and then you um, also spoke to it. I think the first thing would be for a mentor or somebody, an adult uh, that's stepping into a relationship with a young person that is experiencing that. I think first is to call it like it is, is to first identify it as something that's a certain way that should not be that way. And that's tough. You You have to earn that space. You can't, you know, you can't meet a kid and they say something sideways to another kid and then be like, Hey, you know, what are you doing? You can't bully him. That's, that's wrong. You can't do it. Like, I know that, you know, that may here and there, that may be necessary. Um, but in my experience, that's not the way to, to generate or to begin impact or change in a kid. Um, a lot, or I know the kids that I work with, you have to earn their trust. You have to earn that space to speak to them in that way, whether you're, even if what you're saying is hundred percent true, 
you still have to earn that time and that space to have that conversation um, for them to believe you, to, to value what you have to say. So I think first you, you need to spend time with a kid. You need to spend time and it doesn't have to be some spectacular, grandiose experience. It just needs to literally be minutes and hours spent with that kid, whether it's playing video games, playing basketball, you know, listening to music. I mean, even sitting down and watching a goofy show with the kid and just fit, being physically present with them and laughing with them, like that generates comfort uh, for that child where they, they begin to trust you. And I think then once you've earned that trust, which comes from time, I think then you can speak to that child's life and say, hey, you know what, you know, Zach, you know, I've noticed this about you. When you speak to people or other kids in this way, like, I don't know if you know it, but it's, it's, it's harsh. It's mean. And I think it upsets them. It doesn't make them feel good about themselves. And, you know, that's all they know because that's how they're spoken to at home or at school. And so, so letting them know, like, this is not the way we are to speak to people. This is not kind. Um, and then encouraging them to speak kindly or to, to change their behaviors towards other kids that you observe that to, to give them um, tips or clues or hints or examples of, Hey, next time, uh, next time this kid steals the basketball from you, maybe don't yell at him. Just be like, Hey man, you can, you can play with me. Like we can share, like you pass me the ball, I'll shoot you rebound. Then I'll pass to you and you shoot, you know? So giving them practical examples of, of how to engage with kids, you know, if that kid is the one that is the one bullying, um, I think that you earn that, that respect, that trust, you speak truth into their lives. And then you give them practical examples of, of what it looks like to kind of flesh out what you're speaking to them. Yeah. Wow. Training a kid in how to respond rightly within that situation, which I think is tough to figure out. Uh, I mean, I guess you're being trained in a different way of living and right. the mentor is creating a contrast between relational experiences. And so I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of tension in that moment of trying to retrain someone's response to something that's negative. Sure. I'm sure that takes a lot of time for the kids to eventually be like, you know what? I actually do want you to play basketball with me. Like, <laughs> right. um, and, and that, that space really is determined by how much experience this kid has in someone kind of training and calling him up into that way of living. Right. And I, I think at the same time, it kind of connects to your point about 11 and 12 year olds having to make adult decisions. Kids should not have to figure out how to, um, build bridges with other kids like that and be the, be the main cog that uh -huh. determines if a relationship is healthy or not. Right. Um, and so I think that's a really tough thing that probably mentors don't recognize that actually being a kid in a hard place, you actually have to have a lot of compassion and kindness and grace for mm. the people that you're in relationship with. Right. Yeah, you're right. And, and to speak into that, even like I think about, so I have, I have two children, my wife is pregnant, but even the two that I have now, like I spend, or they spend, even when school's in, they spend close to half of their day with me. So 50% of their day is with me. I can't get my children to do what I ask them or tell them to do 20% of the time, the first time, right? And they have extensive time and trust and relationship built with me. So then you come to this kid that's coming from a hard place that you see for an hour a day, two, three times a week. I mean, it's going to take a while. Like you speak I think sometimes it gets frustrating because you think, well, I'm speaking truth and I'm speaking honestly and I'm speaking from a heart that cares. And so, you know, why won't this child behave in a certain way that I desire them to? You have to consider 95% of their day is spent in an environment, whether at home or at school, where they're told that they're being told the complete opposite. And so, and again, that's where, that's where as a ministry where, our, where prayer for us is so crucial because we're working against the odds and we know that. Like this is for all intents and purposes. I mean, this, this battle that we're fighting and we can, I mean, it's a, it's a spiritual battle for these children and their hearts and their spirits. Like we know that the odds are stacked against them, but we yeah. trust that Jesus is bigger and, and more powerful than any circumstance that they could be in. And so 
when we tell the, the kids these things or when we encourage mentors to speak these truths into people, we also kind of have to curb their enthusiasm or their expectations to say, listen, like it's not going to happen like today, probably not next week, probably not in a month. It may not even happen this year. Like this is a conversation you're having now that you may not see the fruit of this for another two, three years. So buckle up. Like, I hope you're in this for the long haul because this is, this is a relationship. This is not, you know, a come and go check your punch card thing off. Like if you're, if you want to see real change and real, um, real difference, then you better be prepared to put in real time and, and spend a lot of time in prayer. Cause that's what, again, that's been our experience and that's, that's the way that we function. That's so good, Luke. Um, for all intents and purposes, we are fighting an uphill battle, right? Uh-huh. Um, I know for me, it is easy to get discouraged from time to time. Um, can uh, you shed some light on how you, someone who spends day in and day out with these kids and who has been doing that for the last, you know, 13 years, how do you stay encouraged? How do you um, keep from getting discouraged and believing the lies that, man, this kid's too hard. I am, I am, I can't change him and all of those lies. Right. Um, So I'd say two things, excuse me. And, and both of these things were, were things that probably for the first four or five years that I worked with youth, from this community and from, from this neighborhood that I, that I didn't know. And the first four or five years that I worked here, I would, I would become extremely discouraged. I would get frustrated, um, at myself. I get frustrated at kids. I'd become impatient with kids, um, like vocally, like I would, my effort and my energy towards the kids would be less than like, it would fluctuate just based on basically the results that I was seeing from what I thought, you know, I had earned, you know, I had said the right things and done the right things and, you know, put a lot of energy into certain kids and, I wasn't getting what I thought were appropriate results. And so there were, there were times early on in ministry where I questioned, you know, like, first of all, is this even worth it? Like, is this just all for naught? And then even beyond that, like, do I really want to do this? Like, do I really want to commit my life to this when like, it's pointless? Like, what is, what's, what's the end all here? You know, but two things that really changed my perspective and, and give me energy and give me vision and give me, give me purpose um, is to even look beyond just the kids. So like, and what I mean by that is two things. Um, the first I'll kind of lay out and flesh out for you. The second is success stories. So like kids that were hard to deal with, like toughest of the tough, and then building those relationships with them and then them coming back years later and being like, this is who I am. This is where I am. And them saying, thank you. Like those, like I'd say first and foremost, like those are the ones that give you energy and fuel, um, like future work. Like you got a kid, which I'll tell a story of a certain kid here in a minute. I mean, that's one thing that definitely um, energizes you and, and fuels you uh, going forward. Uh, but that can't be it. That can't be everything because if those don't come, then then you fizzle out. And so what I learned is um, as I just grew in my walk and grew in my faith, spent more time in scripture um, and spent more time praying, is I realized that it's not what I was doing before in ministry with kids was it was the equation was me plus the kid equals whatever the result, whatever the end game is. And the problem was I thought I was too big of a factor in that. I thought I was the factor in that. Or, or whoever the mentor was. Um, what I learned is in reading through scripture is that like, yeah, the harvest is plentiful and I'm a worker. That's great. But like I can plant and I can dig and I can water, but God's the one that makes it grow. Yeah. And so like I can, I can work and work and work, which I need to be doing that. But like Jesus is the one that determines the win. Like it's going to grow. And I have faith that it's going to grow. I know it's going to, there's no doubt in my mind that each of these kids that I work with, there's going to be fruit. The difference is I don't know what that fruit is and when it's going to happen. Only Jesus does. And so that's why we pray with these kids. That's why we commit them to Jesus. We want them to know Jesus. 
because we obviously want that that harvest to be as plentiful as possible. Um, but even if it's not, even if it's a little fruit, then it's still worth it. And so each of these kids, it's almost like now I've gotten to where the more frustrating and the more dif- difficult they are, well, the bigger the payoff is in the end for them, because look how much they have to gain from getting something right or from having, you know, something go their way, you know, in their home life or at school or in their personal lives. Like those are the ones that Jesus uses and creates something beautiful out of because, you know, they were the furthest down um, in the barrel as they could get and look how far they've come. And so, so those two things, the first one would be realizing that it's not about me and it's not even really about the kid, but it's about Jesus working in them and, and him being the one that lets that fruit produce that fruit um, in their lives. And then second would be success stories or hearing certain kids come back and basically say, thank you, or, you know, say, well, this is where I am now, you know, thanks to, to Rock Island or to my mentor or, or what have you. So the, I can dig, I can water, I can plant, but God causes the growth. Usually when people say that, what they are getting at is that I, my contribution isn't the main thing. God's contribution is the main thing. But what you just said was that whatever a man sows, that is what he'll reap. And you, you brought in a perspective of God's going to make this grow. God's right. going to use what I pour in and what I plant uh-huh. and what I dig. And I think that that is a, a beautiful perspective that that doesn't just, you know, kind of false humility, put down our work and our contribution, but actually there's a belief that God is going to use this. Like right. God's going to use what I plant and dig. And so, which I thought that that was just really good, Luke. Yeah. And, and, and something else I'll add to that is, again, something I've only worked with the understanding of the last seven or eight years is like, it's an honor to be, to work with these students and these kids that are coming from difficult places. Um, I mean, it's difficult, sure. But like, like you described, Stephen, I mean, God is going to make it grow. Like, I want to be a part of that. Like, I want to be the one that plants. I want to be the one that waters. I want to be the one that steps into that to, to see what happens. Cause I I want to see the end game here. Um, like, I don't want to, I don't want to miss out because if I don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Hopefully someone else is going to do it, but I'm going to beat them to it. Like, I don't, like, I want to see like what God's going to do here. And so that's not my only encouragement, but that's definitely something that fuels me because I'm excited to see, like, yeah, I, I love these kids and I love my job and like, I'm honored and blessed to be here, but like, ultimately I want to see God. Mm. And so, and, and I do through, through these kids and through their stories and through their lives. And so, I, I mean, that's definitely something that energizes me. I, I can't imagine doing anything different. I, I'm just not aware. I'm, I know that God is working in other places, even outside of ministry and the business sector and what have you, but I, I want more of it. I want, I want to see more yeah. of it. Man, just like, can Continuing on, just how how do we continue down the path that the Lord has for us whenever whenever it does get hard? I remember there was a there was a situation between a person who you guys served and uh, your dad a couple years ago, um, and I just want to know if uh, you could talk about that story. Yeah, and that this this is a story of <laughs> every emotion yeah. possible. My, my father, his name is Paul. He's the director here at Crossing Crown, and uh, people in the community they call him Pastor Paul. Um, that's just, that's what they call him. Uh, we serve. So like we, our demographic of individuals, we serve ranges from homeless individuals to working class, you know, Latino, African-American, Native American, Caucasian. I mean, it's, it's a very mixed bag where we are, but everyone, even Spanish speaking, mm-hmm. Pastor Paul, Pastor Paul, everyone calls him Pastor Paul. So he, my father, my father is well known around here just because he has a heart, the heart of Jesus, the heart of a servant. Um, and so he's built a reputation of just caring for this neighborhood even before I was here. Uh, this is probably shoot five years ago. Um, we had our after school program. I had probably 30, 35 kids in the youth center. It was just a hangout day. So kids pretty wild here on hangout days. Kids are eating pizza, playing video games, playing basketball, air hockey pool. I mean, it's, it's a madhouse around here. These two little girls approached me 
uh, they were probably, I knew one of them, but she was probably 10 years old. And then she had a friend with her that was maybe nine or 10. I think they were school classmates. They pointed outside and they said that there was a, a lady who appeared to be on the streets. I'm not sure if she was homeless or not, but she, she appeared to be on the streets pretty frequently. And she had a little dog with her on a leash. And the young girl that was visiting with her friend that day said, that's my dog. That lady has my dog. I lost my dog a couple of days ago and that's it. That's my dog. And so, you know, I'm saying, okay, all right, hold on. Let's hold on. Tell me what happened. You know, that kind of thing. So we step outside. The lady with the dog had actually stopped at the corner. So she was sitting there. I was talking to the two young girls outside and I said, okay, what happened? I said, well, my dog went missing a couple of days ago. It's a puppy and we just got it. And we, I live around the corner and that lady, that, that's my dog. That lady has. And so I didn't know the lady, which, I mean, it's not that unusual for me not to know her, but we know most of the people, especially those on the streets that are, you know, walking back and forth because they kind of stay in one area, but I didn't recognize her. But so I, I waved her down and she looked skeptical as I approached her. And I said, Hey man, I'm sorry. My name is Luke. You know, I said, I'm the youth director here. And I said, if I could just ask you about your dog for a second. And before I could even get it out of my mouth, she begins to curse at me. What are you, what the heck, blah, blah, blah. This, what are you, what are you doing? This kind of thing. And just immediately goes into defense mode. And so I had a pretty good idea that was probably not her dog. <laughs> and so I said, I said, ma'am, this, this, this girl here, she lost her dog a couple of days ago. We, we're looking for her dog. So would you be able to help? Are you, do you know where this dog is from? And as we're talking, uh, a gentleman walks up and he, he said, hey, who, why are you talking to my girl? Why are you talking to my girl? And I said, I, I'm asking her about her dog. And again, I immediately associate myself with the, the ministry. So there, you know, that diffuses it a little bit. I'm here with Cross and Crown. I work at Cross and Crown, you know, that kind of thing. And yeah, this is our dog. We've had it for, we've had it since it was born. We picked it out of the litter, that kind of thing. And so he starts kind of giving a history. I said, okay, all right. You know, I just tried to diffuse it and just step away because it was not, it wasn't going anywhere good any, anytime soon. So I, I pulled back and the little girl that said it was her lost dog starts whispering to her friend while I'm talking to the adults. And so the adults leave, I walk away and the girl that I knew who her friend was whispering to her, she goes, Hey Luke, that's not her dog. And I said, what? And she goes, well, once we got closer, she decided that's not her dog. It's a different kind. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I just accused them of stealing your dog, you know, that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I kind of yeah. felt bad about it, but no big deal, no harm, no foul. And uh, so we go back inside, back to the crazy house with all the kids. That couple, they walk up the street. Well, my dad was across the street fixing a trailer and uh, he saw us talking, but he didn't know what it was about. He just observed. About 20 minutes later, one of our middle school kids who had not been in the youth center comes ripping through the front door screaming they got paul they got paul they did it they jumped paul and so i'm thinking right i mean they jumped paul around here that means four or five guys are beating someone up on the ground kicking him in the face that kind of thing so i sprint out the door i knew my dad where he was and i sprint back there and as i'm running i like i literally almost brush shoulders with the guy running the other way and i'd never seen the guy didn't know him but all i knew is i just needed to get to my dad and so I run inside this gate and I get to my dad and he's hunched, hunched over holding his face. It's like, dad, what happened? What happened? What happened? He said, he said, that, that guy just sucker punched me out of nowhere. He did. And he kind of had some blood, but he was, you know, he wasn't knocked out or anything like that. And so I, I kind of put two and two together. It was the guy that just ran past me. So I turned around just in my rage. I'm hot right now. Like I'm in flight or fight right. mode <laughs> right now. And so this guy's sprinting down the street. And so I start chasing him and I get probably, I mean, 50 yards into it. And I'm like, what am I doing? Like, like I'm literally about to like tackle this guy and what, like fight him. So I kind of come to, and I turn around and go back to my dad and I'm like, dad, what happened? He's like, that guy never knew. He just, he walked up to me friendly. And then he said, Hey, why are you talking to my woman? And I said, what are you talking about? What? I, I'm not. And the guy said, you harassing her about her dog. 
And my dad said, I have, I'm sorry, man. I don't, and he said he was talking and the dude just punched him in the face and ran off. And I was like, oh my gosh, dad, that punch was supposed to be for me. <laughs> that was my punch and I could have seen it coming. And so my dad's like, no, don't. I said, I saw the dude. I said, he rounded the corner by somebody's house that we know. I said, I'll go see if he's in that house. And he's like, no, Luke, don't. It's fine. I'm fine. That kind of thing. And so I'm still, no, this is my dad. Like he's, <laughs> he's 60 years old. Like some 30 year old dude just put like, no, like that's not okay. And so anyway, I go back to the youth center. We got about 20 minutes before we close. And I'm like, all right, you know what? We're shutting it down. Cause all the kids know what happened by this time. Had some high school kids there. Actually the kid that at this point that wasn't, that was going to live with me, I didn't know it yet, but that Garza mentioned earlier, he big, yeah. he's a large kid, about six, six, two fifty. He and his, some of his homies were there and they heard about it. And they said, they said, Oh, we're going to find him right now. We'll fit. We'll figure this out. And so I'm trying to guys, no, don't do that. Don't hunt him down. Don't, you know, Oh, they hit pastor Paul. It's on. It's Oh, it's over. We'll hit. It's no big deal. That kind of thing. So, I mean, word spreads quick that like, this is what's happened. Pastor Paul got hit. I mean, no lie within an hour. I had 10 people from the streets that came up to me and said, is pastor Paul. Okay. Where's he at? Is he, who did it? Where is he? Where did he go? So like on one hand, it's, it's like, Oh, cool. The, the community has our back. Like, awesome. This dude, like this guy's got it coming for him. But then what, what I didn't know is I, as I'm dismissing all the kids for the day, there were about four or five kids. that was their first time there. I never met him before all sibling or a couple siblings and some cousins. And as you know, all these, these big boys are talking about who knows it, who's that guy who they're trying to figure out who the dude is that hit pastor Paul. These, this group of uh, four or five kids get really quiet. They get really quiet. and I, I noticed that they were really quiet. And so I approached them and once all the kids left, I said, did you, do you know who that guy was? I said, yeah, that's our uncle. And I, and I could tell they were scared. They weren't, they didn't want to tell me that was their uncle. And I said, does he live with you? And I said, they said, yeah, he just, he just got out of jail. a couple days ago and he's been living with us the last couple days <clears throat> and then one of the younger kids said do we get to come back can we still come back i told him yeah y'all can come back y'all can come tomorrow it's not your fault i tried to let him know you know that's it's not you're not responsible for that you guys come back please come back tomorrow and so i told paul and he, he said the same thing. He said, yeah, I'd never seen the guy before. And we knew, I knew where those kids lived and I knew where that guy was. And I, in fact, later that night, whenever all the big boys, I'm not, no lie, it was nine, 10 o'clock at night. And they said, Hey, we found out where he lived. We're going to his house right now. And I called the, the main kid that I knew well. And I said, do not go to his house. I said, you know, it'll just escalate. It'll just make it worse. He's still in high school. You, you'll get in trouble at school. You won't be able to play basketball. Be smart about it. Uh, and so that was that. And those kids were scared to death. Um, sadly, that's one of those things. Those kids never came back. They were too scared. They got back to the house. I didn't see him that week. So we actually went to the house. We went to the house where I knew they lived, where we knew that guy was. And um, the grandmother that, that owned the house that was letting their uncle stay there and letting those kids stay there made him leave because she found out that he hit Pastor Paul and she was scared what was going <laughs> to happen to him. And so 
on our part, we were a little late. We wanted to give them space to let them know nothing was going to happen. But what happened was the grandma got scared of others that were maybe out for him. And so, and so they ran. So we didn't get a chance to see those kids again. And so that was tough. That was tough to process. Um, and so, so now, now looking back, I mean, there's, there's obviously some humor in it, but there's also a lot of heartbreak in that. Um, that again is one of those things that those kids, like that's their reality. That's their life. And yeah, they were scared in the moment, but chances are stuff like that happens all the time in that household full of individuals that have gone to prison. And, and what's really sad uh, to think is that that uncle who's now adult, who's, who's my age, he was that same kid 20 years ago growing up in a house where his uncle was getting out of jail. And so, so that's what we're faced with. That's the uphill battle of whatever you want to call it, whether, whether you want to call it poverty or, you know, whatever other tag you want to put on it, the cycle of poverty, uh, that's what we're working against. And that's why, so that's why we need Jesus to step into these difficult circumstances because we can't do it. Like I said, we can plant and we can water, and we can do all these different things. But like Jesus is the only one that really makes a difference in that household. Um, the, really the only one that can get to those children's hearts to help them to identify this is not the way things should be. Um, and so that's our prayer. That's our hope. I mean, even when those kids left, there was another adult that was with me there at Rock Island that day that they, they hadn't been there that long. They said, what do you, what do we do? What do we what do we do? And I didn't really know what to tell him in that moment. But later that day, I called him and said, just pray. I mean, and it's not just praying. Like, that's the best thing we can do. Pray for those kids. Pray for their hearts and pray for their lives. Um, and so that's what we do. That's what we do. We pray because a lot of these things are out of our control. So um, I wasn't going to preface that story by saying, I think I've told that story maybe uh, two or three times, like in a church setting when I've preached. And then once I like can a small group and I've never told that story without crying. So <laughs> I thought I was going to break that streak. That's okay. And it's just that's not okay, good to we still love you. So I take that. That's powerful, man. I take that one. So powerful. Yeah. I know with us, like there, there's been times whenever, because of the choices that we've made to build relationships with the types of kids who we build relationships with, that it's caused us heartache. Like it's hurt my wife. It's hurt my kids. Like it's hurt me. And how, how do you continue to, to mentor and to build relationships and to show back up? whenever something, something happens that hurts you. Yeah. So something that I came to the realization again, I feel like seven or eight years ago, I referenced that a lot. There wasn't like an actual like event I can identify, but it just seems like that's kind of where in my adult life, um, that I really started taking like the claims of scripture, like literally started living them the best I could. I mean, I fail every day, but like I'm intentional about that. And about that time, I think it's this kind of cheesy, but this is something significant for me. I mean, I know Zach, even us at, at ACU, I think a song that we sang in chapel and something I grew up singing in church, um, the song that it, part of the lyrics are break, break my heart for what breaks yours. And whenever I began to pray that and really desire that Jesus did that. And so like even the tears that I cry now over the stories and the children, like those things break Jesus's heart. And so like he, <laughs> he, he took me pretty serious when I asked him to do that. And, um, and like you said, it is difficult and it is heartbreaking. And it, it's also very significant to identify like, just like you did Zach, that like my wife doesn't work here full time, but like her heart is broken on a weekly basis from the stories and the children that she knows. And it affects, I mean, it affects your family. Like it's a family ministry and it's a family choice. So that, that I think that's really important to, to say like you did Zach, but I'll also say like the stories of the kids and hearing having them come back. And I'm just now in the last few years, I, I mean, I've known 
the kids when we first started this ministry, I knew them when they were, I knew some of them when they were literally, literally born, but like the first group, they were like six or seven years old. And so now that I'm a little over 10 years into it, a lot of those kids are post high school now. So some of them have children and some of them either went to school or got a job um, or are married or in very serious relationships. And um, a lot of those conversations that I have with them, a lot of my time and my actual work, probably close to a quarter of it is spent in relationship with those students that aren't actually a part of the ministry anymore. Um, and I, I gain a lot of energy and a lot of um, joy from those relationships, hearing them and seeing them in their adult lives and just being a continued encouragement for them. Because just because you graduate high school or, you know, you reach a certain age, it doesn't mean that like you're automatically unable to be mentored or have someone speak like life into you, you know, even as a 36 year old, like I need those people in my life too. Just because I'm a dad and have kids doesn't mean I don't need someone older than me and wiser than me telling me, okay, this is going to happen. This is what you're going to do. And this is how you're going to feel. And this is, this is a way to, to handle that. So I get a lot of joy and a lot of energy from, you know, the post-grad students, so to speak, and and just having conversations with them, Um, especially when they, especially when they're the ones that hit me up first, rather than me reaching out and saying, Hey, checking in with you. Like if I get a text or like a Facebook message from a kid that like really, especially the ones that they leave on bad terms. I'm like, man, I really missed an opportunity with that kid. And they come back three, four years later. And they're like, Hey man, you said this to me. And like that stuck like that. I really felt that those are the ones that really do like push me to, to continue to do what I do for sure. Man, look, that's so good. Yeah, man. I mean, cause it's hard. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, this has been a hard week, like just in our, in our program and just with some of the kids who we spend time with, man, it's, it is just, just feels like there isn't anything kind of, kind of going our way and man, I just can't help but think that the enemy sees us building relationships with these kids who he's had his way with for generations. Right. And he sees us spending time Uh with them. He sees us loving them and he sees us breaking that cycle kid by kid relationship by relationship. And man, he wants to do everything he can to end that. Um, and so, man, I mean, like we can't, we can't allow the enemy to discourage us from doing the work that the Lord has called us to do. Uh, because he's out there and he wants to take us out because he wants to keep those kids in poverty. He wants to keep those kids in just that cycle of hurt. Right. Um, and so, man, it it is just so, it's just so good to hear ways that we can stay, stay in the path that the Lord has for us. So, yeah. Um, Luke, could you, could you share about, um, just something that's been in my head as we've been talking is, scripture that just calls us to weep with those who weep rejoice with those who rejoice i think particularly a lot of a lot of the time lament is something that a lot of mentors face uh, when they enter into an experience of someone that is so different from them is on the other side of the tracks mm-hmm. and, and learning how to lament and not just uh you know throw shade or um, feed into a narrative of these are just bad kids I think that's always something that mentors experience, right. but could you share? Yeah. I mean, even just on that side of how, how you and your, your family rejoice with those who rejoice. And, uh, cause I think, I think mentors would love to, to figure out practical ways of how, how to rejoice in the mentor relationship and, um, rejoice over the little things. Yeah. <clears throat> right. So I think, I think the first thing I would encourage someone to do, um, I don't know that this is the only way to do it, but I think it would be, the most responsible way to do it is to have a mentality or a mindset that that's your intention. So like when you decide to tutor or mentor 
or just show up even to be available to a student, my encouragement would be go into it with the understanding that you're you're in it regardless, right? So, and again, I don't know what that looks like. Different programs have requirements of like time or, you know, objectives to complete or whatnot. Um, we're, the way that our ministry works here is a little different. We're a little more fluid. Um, but what I do ask of people is have the understanding that like whatever happens, like you're in it. So, because every kid's different, right? Like there's no cookie cutter like solution for, okay, after you're here for a week, this is going to happen and your kid's going to tell you this. They're going to share with you this intimate information about their lives. And this is what you say. Like there's not, and we all know that like self-consciously, but like really being honest about it, I think is helpful because you may meet with a kid one time. And I had no lie, two weeks ago, I had a kid meet with a tutor. So the arrangement was helping with homework, reading a Bible story, and then talking about that Bible story and then praying together. And this student, the first time they met, it was like he was looking for someone just to be there for him to say this. He, when they were praying, the, the gentleman said, what would you like to pray about? And this young kid, no older than 10 years old said, well, I'm, I want to thank God. What we do is we, we name something we're thankful for. And then we name something that we would like God to show up for him to step into. And so for the thankful portion, he said, I'm thankful that I have a house, you know, pretty pat answer. Uh, my kids pray for, we pray for provision and for our house and our clothes and, you know, our food. So this could set his house. Well, the, the tutor dug a little deeper and he said, why are you thankful for your house? You know, expecting, you know, pat reply. And the kid said, well, my house got raided last night and the police came in and broke pretty much everything, but at least we still have a house. Okay. So now as a tutor, you have a choice. You can pray about it and then decide, you know what? I'm really not interested in getting into the details, why the police broke in, why, who in that house is causing them concern that they need to be there. Cause if you do that, that opens up a can admittedly, like you're, you're stepping into a very sticky intricate situation if you decide to follow up with that kid about what's happened in his house. Um, and then you have to make another decision. Are you going to be a part of the solution or are you going to step back and just fade fade into the shadows whenever like some practical application is required? So like if that happens again and this kid, what if they decide to completely vacate the house and no one can live in the house, then what? And you don't know where the kid's going to live. Like, are you going to come up with some money to help them get a hotel? Are you going to invite them in your house? So like it plays itself out that way. So my, so my encouragement with somebody is be prepared to for things to get messy. Kind of like what you said, Stephen, like you're going to mourn with those who mourn. You're going to weep with those who weep. You're going to celebrate with those who celebrate. Well, this is one of those experiences of stepping into a difficult situation and being a part of it. Even not even necessarily having a solution, just being shoulder to shoulder with someone in solidarity and saying, listen, like, I don't know what we're going to do, but I'm here. Like, you're not alone. Like, that's a really big deal. And in fact, I'd say probably half of the different issues that we run into here with the kids, whether it be at school or at home or in relationships, like half the time, our solution is, hey, man, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do here, but I'm here. So if, if I figure out something, then you're with me. And if you think of something, then I'll help you do that too. But like, this is us. Like, you're not alone in this. I'm here with you. Your tutor's here with you. You know, you got a sibling here. We're all in this together. So like, there, there's just a lot of peace in knowing that. So that's what I, that's my encouragement to, to mentors is like, just be prepared to shoulder that with people. Just like the scripture said that you read, Stephen, or that you recited, like, that the practical application of that is just be prepared so to good. do whatever. Like you're either in it or you're out. And, and I think it does. In fact, I think the risk is it does more harm if you decide you're in early on and then things get tough and you just step back. And that's always, that happens. And that that's difficult to, to see um, because a lot of these kids are used to that. They see people in and out of their homes, boyfriends in and out of their homes, girlfriends in and out of their homes, relatives. So like they're used to that, just the, those fluid relationships. So to them, it's no big deal if you dip out early on in, t- in mentoring, but it causes it causes pain that maybe they're even unaware yeah. of that at that point in their time. Yeah. Cause they're, I mean, they're children. So That's good Luke. Thanks buddy.
I, I think when you mentor kids who have a lack of resources, that that creates a myriad of other issues. I think one, one that our mentors face a lot is a lack of communication um, with the, yeah. the guardians, the parents. Um, and so I wonder if you could speak to any, any strategies that you found helpful in connecting with kids when really communication is difficult and you can't get a hold of them and uh, how do you chase them down? And what does right. that look like when you live in a city like Dallas? I, I mean, I'm sure it's, it's different, right. but I'm sure it's similar in OKC. You just don't have to right. deal with traffic. So <laughs> exactly, which is like a blessing from God himself. It's like manna falling down from sky, no traffic. So our, our youth center is unique in the fact that like I described earlier, I mean, we are in a neighborhood, like we're in a community residential neighborhood, <clears throat> but we do, I do on a weekly daily basis deal with lack of communication from adults or whoever the guardian is. One of the primary reasons is because guardianship changes so frequently. Like there are so many of these children that one week their grandmother has guardianship and then two, three months later, like I said, their uncle does. And so, and house jumping is pretty, pretty common around here, um, even within the neighborhood. I mean, I have students that literally have three or four different relatives in the neighborhood that live no less than half a mile away from each other, but they stay at a different house two, three times a week or yeah, two, three times a week. And so it's kind of hard to identify, okay, who's really responsible for this child? Um, sadly, the parents or the guardians that I know the most or I am communicating with that I've been intentional with the most, uh, and I don't know if it's because of a lack of staffing or it's just the nature of the work here, but are the kids that tend to be the most trouble, the ones that are the most at risk, or maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a blessing from God. Maybe those kids needed the extra attention and surveillance. I don't know, but it's not uncommon for me to meet a, uh, a parent or a guardian after an issue has occurred, like at the youth center. So like, for instance, a couple of years, a couple summers ago, um, our gaming system, we had an Xbox literally was stolen from the youth center while we were open, like just plain as day. Someone just put it in their backpack, put all the controllers in their backpack and they just dipped out. And like, that was it. And so of course, you know, the, the hood culture, like no one's going to snitch. No one's going to tell you it was like, okay. So what I do is everything we early on, we would have things disappear early on in our ministry, like video games or a controller would disappear. So, you know, we're just the ignorant white guys from the suburbs. We'll just go buy a new controller. Let's just go buy a new video game. We have the resources for it. Um, but the deeper we got into the work here, if something disappears, okay, sorry, we don't have that anymore. So you guys can't play Halo anymore. You can't play NBA 2K anymore. So after school hangout's going to be pretty boring. And so that's what we did. So we didn't have a gaming system for four or five days. And then finally a, a group of five or six boys approached me one day and they were like, okay, Zach stole the gaming system. It's at his house. He has it set up in his mom's bedroom. It's the second bedroom on the left. Like just very, very intimate details of like, they're like, okay, enough is enough. We want our gaming system back. And so I go to the kid's house. Just, I just show up and I knew a little bit about this kid's home life just from word of mouth. And I knew it was probably going to be a little rough, but like, I'm not opposed to just entering into those pretend. I don't know. I wouldn't consider them dangerous. My wife, my wife might, but like, I'm just curious and I want to know people and I want to know what they're going on. I, I'm a person of peace. And so I feel like I can diffuse situations if necessary. Um, but I walked up on that porch and there is a large gentleman on that porch, African-American guy. And he said, what the H are you doing here? And I said, i named the kid's name. So I, I let him know. I know who this kid is. I said, is he here? Could I talk to him? And he said, what do you want to talk to him about? And I said, well, I'd like to talk to him. I told him what was going on. This woman walks outside and said, are you Luke? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am Luke. And she goes, I need to talk to you. 
And so I was like, wait, no, I'm here to talk to y'all. Like y'all, what am I in trouble for? <laughs> and so she invites me in her home and I go and sit down and there's three or four other African-American men in there staring a hole through me. She brings the kid out and she says, he owes, this is not his system, is it? And I said, no, ma'am, that's not his gaming system. And she said, he told us that you gave it to him. And I said, no, that's not how it happened. And so she went on to make him, force him to tell me, basically what, tell her what had happened. And she was very apologetic and she was very, like, I was blown away. I went there to basically set things right. And she took care of that for me. Uh, and what I found out was this mother cared deeply about her child. She was unaware a little bit of, of different things that were going on in his life, but she wanted more than I did, more than I could want for her own child, for things to be made right, for him to make right decisions and for him to be responsible for his wrongdoing. They, they've moved in the last couple of years. And so I, I've kind of, I've lost that relationship, but while she was here, she taught me more about ministry and about this community and about children than I'd learned in 10 years. Mm. She lived it. So like, why wouldn't she have be an expert in her own environment? And she spoke to me. She told me about her child. When I told her, she asked what was the discipline or what was going to happen. And I told her, you know, I don't like to ban kids from a youth center because if I do, then they're just in the streets. Um, and then they're just at risk. And I said, I just, I don't enjoy doing that. And so I said, you know, maybe I'll make him clean up when he's here, make him do some chores, whatnot. And she said, listen, if you do not make him pay for what he did, whatever you decide to do, then all these kids will think that they can just do whatever they want and get away with anything. He needs to find out now that he can't get away with this. So later in life, he'll basically learn that you can't get away with stuff. Yeah. And I said, yes, ma'am, I will do that. And so we created a way. I think he ended up basically having to clean the first couple of times he came back. But that's how I meet parents. I mean, honestly, the kids that there are a few, there's a collection of kids that come to the UC Center that honestly, they don't need Rock Island. Rock Island needs them. I need them to be here to keep things stable, to keep things in order, um, just to be a good influence for a lot of the other kids. And honestly, I don't know their parents that well because I know they have good home lives. Um, and so they don't necessarily require that. The kids that I do know their parents are the ones that need, they need the most help. Some of those, some of those parents and guardians are very receptive and very helpful. And when they are, they are the biggest resource possible. And then others that come from homes where parents or whoever neglect them, those are really difficult. Those are the kids that have the, obviously have the smallest of chance and, um, and it's hard. It's, those are difficult to, to stomach and to have to face that reality. But again, like, let's leave that up to God. Yeah. I'll, I'll do my best and we'll leave the rest up to God. That's good, Luke. So good. Something that I heard time after time after time with you is just the power of showing up, right? Just like there's so much that the Lord can do whenever you just show up in his name. And, uh -huh. um, and then just prayer. I mean, we can never forget to bring these kids and the situations and our relationships to the Lord's feet in prayer. Um, because, I mean, yeah we can show up and we can love them and things like that. But true life change comes only from Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's interview with Luke Whitmire from the Cross and Crown Mission in Oklahoma City. We'd encourage you to check out our show notes to connect with them. You can visit their website at crossandcrownmission.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, whoever in your life is interested in mentoring kids from hard places. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you learned. If there's nothing you picked up from today's episode, let it be this. You can mentor.